You're listening to Podnosis, the pulse of the healthcare industry. I'm Teresa Carey. I think on the tailwinds of digital health and this wave of digital health that we have seen catalyzed by COVID, it behooves us to really leverage that technology that has been created over the past couple of years to improve health equity. That was Jake Prigoff talking with Fierce's Anastasia Gladkovskia about the importance of diverse investors and founders. But before we dive into that, let's talk about email. I just sent an email to my son's doctor this morning through the MyChart portal. Just a quick question, you know. Many parents, like myself, or patients, have become accustomed to sending follow-up questions to their doctor through an online messaging portal. Sometimes we just need a quick clarification about a medication regime, or other times it can turn into a full-fledged conversation, back and forth over symptoms or something that needs more clarification. And that takes time. So more and more organizations are announcing policies that charge for certain electronic messaging to providers. Late last year, Cleveland Clinic, for instance, announced that a subset of messages that required medical expertise and more than five minutes to answer could see payers or patients billed up to $50. Critics of the practice have characterized these policies as a new way for hospitals to nickel and dime their patients. Cleveland Clinic and others say the policies can help justify the effort practitioners put toward a time-effective alternative to in-person appointments. John Hargraves, Director of Data Strategy for the Health Care Cost Institute, spoke with Fierce Healthcare's Dave Moyo about whether we can expect to see more of these policies and the potential impact they could have on healthcare. Here they are. John, thanks so much for coming on to speak today about the ongoing shift in patient-provider messaging policies. As you know, the justification for all this seems to be the sheer volume of messages and the workload that's being placed on clinicians. Does that argument from the uh, organization side hold weight with you, or do you lean a little bit more favorably towards the uh, patients who are surprised that they're going to start being charged for this? I think it, you know both can be true. I know I've been using one of these kind of portal messaging systems with my you know, healthcare providers probably over five years now, and it would be kind of shocking to get a bill for something I've used, you know, for five years and never been charged for, or at least I don't think I've been charged for, you know, in the U.S. healthcare system, there's many sort of services uh, where we, as patients, don't see the charges and how much is paid because there's not an out-of-pocket portion. But um, when health systems do start to bill for these services, uh, there are thresholds that of amount of time that must go into answering and and the level of complexity and certain types of email answers don't qualify for payment. I don't know if that's, you know, um, assessed really. It'd be kind of hard to sit down and and watch how long it takes for uh, someone to reply to every email and if it meets the exact thresholds for for billing, which I think is at least five minutes um, to the lowest level. As economists like to say, there's definitely an opportunity cost, which is seeing a patient and uh, providing services that have uh, that no one questions are billable. The threshold cutoff is interesting. I've seen some implementations where they they put the onus on the clinician who is responding to these messages themselves to decide 
hey, was this a, one, how much time did it take? Do you think it was substantial? And two, do you think the response that you gave to that patient was substantial? It's interesting to think of some of those being determined by the clinician as the arbitrator mm-hmm. of when you get yeah, charged. I mean, that's <laughs> just the nature, I think, of most billing. Um, you know, it's the same for an office visit in person um, or an emergency room visit even has these kind of uh, levels. Which, you know, there's usually four or five levels of uh, complexity or time. And it, it's not always as uh, clear. And I don't think anyone has a stopwatch. Uh, so a lot of it does become up to the clinician to, to bill appropriately. And, you know, if it's on the threshold of how much uh, time and thinking and testing and other things, it's definitely one of those quirks of the system. I do want to ask you a little bit about the impact this type of uh, policy could have on healthcare utilization. So I'm going to float a couple studies, some research data that's been published just within the last handful of months providing regarding specifically patient provider messaging. One of these, JAMA Network opened just a few weeks ago, actually, reported that the volume of behavioral health messages among outpatients at a large Midwestern academic medical center had significantly increased, more than doubled, when looking before and after the pandemic. The other study from UCSF Health earlier this year found, among other things, that implementing a charge policy for messaging decreased the volume of received patient portal messages once the patients were aware that they could be charged. So my question is, if these policies do lead to messaging declines, as the second study uh, seemed to imply, should we be concerned that these policies could be stifling demand for needed care and particularly in a post-pandemic environment where certain healthcare needs, for instance, uh, behavioral health, may have, uh, they might not have gotten the care they needed during the pandemic or chose to defer their care for whatever reason. There could be increasing demand that now is being stifled by such a policy. Yeah, I do think it's it's a concern. Um, it's always a concern with, you know, when healthcare needed healthcare services are, you know, delayed or avoided or um, forgotten by the patient because of a fear of the cost. Um, You know, unfortunately, there's not a lot of price transparency involved in healthcare and uh, insurance and benefit design can be very complicated. So I think there's a, you know, a certain fear of financial insecurity when it comes to interacting with the healthcare system, that fear of the surprise bill. Um, and even the like, you know, unfortunately, most of the news stories you hear about surprise bills, it's the 10,000, 20,000, right? It's these outrageous amounts. Yeah. Um, now, I would be shocked and I don't know how it would be possible to get a you know, $10,000 bill for uh, asynchronous email communications with providers. Um, but, you know, that policy change, that announcement of it and the coverage of it, um, and that sort of fear of like, oh no, I'm going to be charged possibly a lot. Um, from the patient perspective, I mean, it could shift, you know, change some of those decisions on, am I going to contact my provider for this? Um, now I'm sure there's sometimes a good thinking through of like, well, should I contact my provider and ask the question, this email portal or what I actually do I know that eventually I'm going to want to see this my provider face to face and we'll talk about this anyway um, 
you know, there's there's certain decisions on the margin where maybe the nudge either way is helpful. But where you really worry, and I think you're the um, example of behavioral health, of course, is is a concerning one because there's just not a lot of supply of you know appointments for people to visit providers in person um, or to get in to see you know, behavioral health providers. So telehealth and uh, asynchronous email communication is, plays a big role in providing, you know, behavioral health care. I think it's important with the announcing of like, well, we are charging for this, uh, you know, communication service, this portal service, like, but we do not charge for answering X, Y, Z questions. Um, but the most pertinent ones being that, you know, medication refills or questions about medications, um, appointment scheduling. Like what, where is the line between uh, what, it ca- what types of questions are, you know, freely answered and which ones are the more complex ones uh, that could involve a charge? Mm-hmm. Because you don't want people not getting prescription refills, especially if it's, you know, conditions that require rather strict medication adherence because they're afraid that, you know, their provider's going to charge them uh, for asking for a refill. Absolutely. So maybe to distill that down a little bit, it sounds like you think there's probably a good middle ground here and a lot of it comes down strictly yeah, to I the messaging. Yeah, I think it's the messaging, you know, both what, what types of messages can be charged for. And also how much, (laughs) even knowing that the um, minimum is zero and the max is 50, at least puts it into perspective for the patient. So there's not a fear of these kind of outrageous surprise bills. So um, I appreciate that we're talking about the uh, communications component of this and uh, bringing the information to the patient. You and I actually spoke about this a handful of months back and the time since has seen another uh, number of systems announce they're adopting the changes as well. Back then, you said the thing that surprised you the most wasn't that the charges were happening at all, but that the health systems were being so upfront and even announcing that we were going to begin charging that additional transparency. Why was that surprising to you? Was Why was that a signal of a change? Yeah, it uh, was surprising because typically in healthcare, um, you know, the prices and the policies regarding what's, you know, coverage decisions, whether they come from, you know, big health systems or small hospitals or even, you know, local physician office, there's not a lot of transparency about the cost of things. Um, a lot of the emphasis is often on the types of care provided, what services can be done, um, the quality of site. You know, cost has become the, like, dirty secret, like the, ooh, you don't want to bring that up, a little taboo when you're talking to a provider about uh, options for treatments or um, care. You know, people do not like to bring up cost. And so to kind of announce, okay, we're going to charge for this. And, you know, we've seen in some of those announcements what the actual prices are. Uh, That is definitely a shift because to put the price out there, you know, it does limit the how much they can charge uh, because there's a list of the prices. Rather than trying to, you know, increase that price rapidly, people can kind of say, okay, yes, it was free, but then that initially was, you know, being charged at a rate of $30, $40. Um, 
and like having it right on the hospital website rather through than um, through sort of a government website of this is what Medicare pays or through a website like ours that looks at, you know, commercially insured trends um, and reports research on things like this. But just having it right there on the, the provider's website is, is a, a change from those days of just like, we don't talk about costs because don't you care about health? How much of that do you think has really been pushed by a lot of the federal regulations? Like, is it sort of a mentality that is now spreading to their other communications and operations, not just, oh, we need to publish X many uh, services prices on our website? Yeah, I think it's in some sense, it could be a response to the federal regulations, but I really think it's a, you know, even the regulations are a response to patient demands in the sense of you know, people are aware that healthcare is very expensive and that there is uncertainty and people want to know how much it's going to cost. Um, they want to have information about prices when making decisions about their health, but people know it's an extremely uncomfortable conversation to have with a provider when talking about treatment options or saying like, no, I can't schedule another follow-up appointment for a month or two months later because you know, the copay for this one is going to, yeah, still be a problem. Um, but having this kind of like emphasis on transparency and cost as an issue in healthcare and important information everyone needs, yeah, we see that be kind of picked up in federal regulations with the hospital and payer transparency data. We also see it just kind of um, opinion polls of patients as issues in healthcare. Um, I think, you know, this might be a sign that providers are like, you know, I know these are probably not going to be popular changes in billing practices, but um, at least they are getting the answers to the questions about how much it'll be, how much it'll cost the patient um, on their websites. I'm saving the big question here for last. You told me when we spoke previously back in late 2022, that even despite the pushback, you didn't see these charging for patient messaging policies going away anytime soon. I think you actually use the phrase, you can't put the cork back in the bottle. <laughs> Is that still your official position here on what we might see going forward? Yes. I frame, you know, you can't put the cork back in the bottle when it comes to what services are billable and the, you know, status quo of what is billable or not. And yeah, since really the beginning of 2020, uh, when these services really became billable through Medicare and the pandemic kind of coincided, yeah, that was that was it. Like now, these are services providers will bill for. Um, now, what circumstances? How commonly they're billed for? Yeah, to bill for something involves learning new codes and administrative burden and so on. Um, I think that's probably why you have larger systems adopting billing, you know, announcements of billing first. But, um, yeah, healthcare providers in the U.S. are used to learning how to bill for services. And, you know, there's like 40,000 codes that are all used to bill for various uh, services clinicians provide. So, when new ones are added and they have a 
allowable reimbursement that will be used. John, thanks so much for joining me to speak about this. Yeah, thank you for having me. Studies have shown a clear correlation between companies with diverse leadership and business success. Yet, according to one survey, 40% of healthcare professionals work for organizations without diversity, equity, and inclusion, or DEI, initiatives. Established organizations are more likely to have resources to do DEI work, but financing up-and-coming healthcare companies is also key. A recent Morgan Stanley survey found that nearly half of all U.S. investors and 86% of queer investors want more opportunities to invest in LGBTQ equity and inclusion. Next, we'll hear from Anastasia Gledkovskia as she talks with Jake Prigoff. Jake is the general partner at Gangles, a VC firm. They'll talk about why the healthcare industry needs more funding for diverse and underrepresented founders and how that, in turn, will make for a more inclusive healthcare system. Hi, Jake. It's great to be chatting with you again. Great to be chatting with you. Thanks for having me. So to just dive right in, I know you're a physician by training, and I wanted to hear about why and how you ended up in the VC world and just what investing in diverse companies means to you. Yeah, absolutely. I guess my background uh, starts a little bit before med school. Um, I got my start in the cancer research world. Um, I was doing a bunch of clinical research, but in um, 2020 and I guess late 2019, really started to develop um, an interest in the innovation economy. Um, And after developing a couple of devices um, and starting to engage in kind of the, the entrepreneurial ecosystem, I recognized that I could have a broader impact on the healthcare industry um, from a position away from the bedside. And mm. so there was a little bit of overlap while I was still uh, operating and, and practicing in the clinical setting um, and working in VC. But about two and a half years ago, to, made the decision to shift away from clinical practice um, and to uh, and to come into venture capital. And a natural fit for me was Gangels, um, where, where I am now. Um, Gangels is uh, amongst now the, the largest investors um, aiming to deliver consistently above market returns, but with this mission of increasing visibility, representation, and access for all up- underrepresented communities uh, in venture capital. And, and it got its founding as an LGBTQ angel group in New York. Um, And as a gay man, the mission alignment was certainly there. And I love the work that they, uh, that they were doing and they continue to do, we continue to do. Um, And so it was a, it was a great fit for me. Awesome. Well, I definitely want to talk more about Gangels um, and about what you see as the most pressing um, places to, to invest in healthcare. But I just wanted to touch a bit more on this idea of you feeling like you could have a broader impact on the sector from a position of kind of economic power versus by a bedside. Can you expand on that and and um, help me understand your thinking there? Absolutely. Um, one of the things I realized while in clinical medicine was that the folks who are, are shaping the healthcare industry, the folks who are building the infrastructure 
um, on which the healthcare industry functions um, are not really clinicians. And there is a perspective, I think, that can be lost. And so one of the things that excites me most about being involved in the venture community is that I could bring a unique perspective from a clinical background to help improve um, the technologies that are being developed to help improve the companies that are that are framing and creating the healthcare industry that providers are using. Um, and to use that lens and to use my background um, as a way to, to help build a healthcare system that is focused on the patient, that is focused on the providers, um, you know, that is inclusive of all perspectives. Um, and I found that uh, kind of the clinical perspective was one that was oftentimes missing. Um, and hmm. so happy to, to bring that to the table. Yeah. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. And from your point of view, what exactly do you see as um, the, the areas that are most critically in need of investment in healthcare? I think health equity is certainly an area uh, in which we've seen some some real interest recently um, in terms of investment, but certainly uh, is in need of more. Um, I think on the um, kind of tailwinds of digital health and and this wave of digital health that we have seen catalyzed by COVID, um, it behooves us to really leverage that that technology. Um, that is being created right now that has been created over the past couple of years to improve health equity um, and to improve access. And I think that is certainly an area of interest for, for me. Hmm. So health tech to help boost and enhance health equity. Absolutely. The LGBT community is the fastest growing demographic. Uh, it's doubled in the past 10 years, growing from 3.5% 10 years ago to 7.2% uh, right now. And what's really interesting when you break down the kind of generational divide here is that if you look at Gen Z, about 20% of Gen Z identify as LGBT. Um, and so it's a population that is growing rapidly and engaging with the healthcare system in a consumer-focused, tech-driven way. Mm -hmm. And the tools that we have now give us the ability to engage with that population where they are um, and to connect with these folks and improve their health outcomes. Yeah, yeah. that's. Um, I appreciate you bringing that up. Can you help us understand some of the most um, pressing health needs of the LGBTQ community right now? Absolutely. Um, I think when we talk about LGBTQ health, uh, a lot of folks jump to classic examples um, like HIV or mm -hmm. mental health or um, substance use disorder. But um, there are a number of conditions that over-index within the LGBTQ population that sometimes go unrecognized. Um, a great example is cervical cancer. Uh, that happens to be more common in the LGBT community. There are a number of cancers, actually, that happen to be more common in the community. Mm -hmm. um, and so uh, investing in solutions aimed at those conditions is important. Yeah, and I feel like there is a growing number of companies that are tackling LGBTQ uh, health, both with medical services, but also care navigation um, there's there's a lot of startups now that are, are 
passionate about this and sometimes whose founders themselves are a member of the LGBTQ community. What is your thought on um, this this expansion? Is it happening rapidly enough? Is there enough funding or are there enough companies to really be addressing the needs of this population? I wish there were. I will say that there is really great progress being made, but it takes time and that system is slow to scale. And um, at the moment, we are faced with a gap in care where we do not have enough clinically and culturally competent providers to provide the care that the community needs. And and naturally, I think as any kind of uh, new um, innovation comes along, you're going to see more activity in the earlier stages. And so that's what we're seeing. We're seeing a number of companies um, who are early in their life cycle, but with a very clear mission um, of addressing the disparities that exist for uh, for diverse patient populations, inclusive of the LGBT community. Um, and naturally, I think uh, the founders that identify with this mission, the founders that align with this perspective are those who have conviction in the product that they're building, the, the, the patients that they're looking to treat, and oftentimes are from the LGBT community. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that's something that I wanted to talk about a little more. Um, we know that when it comes to LGBTQ founders, um, they have created like 36% more jobs, 114% more patents, and 44% more exits than the average founder. This is according to um, a nonprofit called Startout that I know incidentally was co-founded by um, a managing partner at Gangels. Um But LGBTQ founders have raised less than 1% of all startup funding since since Startout began tracking this since like the year 2000. So why is there such a lack of um, equitable funding available for these founders when there is a clear business and economic case for return on investment in the space? Yeah, it's a a great question. Um, And that less than 1% is... Uh, is is pretty shocking when you look at it. Um, Morgan Stanley just came out with a report that that highlighted uh, half a percent of venture capital in the U.S. is raised by LGBTQ plus uh, startup founders. Um, and I think that there are two pieces to this. One, I think, is that there traditionally has been kind of an underreporting of folks who are from the LGBT community, and it certainly aligns with something that I've heard from a number of LGBTQ founders um, in that they remain in the closet when chatting with potential investors because they Mm -hmm. worry that it could put that relationship at risk. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think the other is representation within venture. Um, You know, naturally at at all kind of stages of financing, whether it's institutional LPs or fund of funds or uh, GPs of funds or founders um, and, you know, kind of the, the, the ladder of, kind of capital hierarchy, if you will, um, there needs to be representation at all levels. And I think we are certainly seeing a, a venture ecosystem that is improving in terms of its representation. But mm-hmm. as venture goes, most folks tend to start early stage um, and work their way towards later stage um, investing strategies. And so we're still early on 
in this kind of wave of diversity within venture. I think one of the things that's worth noting is uh, the existing um, initiatives that are built around inclusivity within the venture ecosystem, one of which um, Gangels is, is a founding party to. It's called the Diversity Term Sheet Writer Initiative. Um, and it is the commitment from venture firms and folks within the community to include diverse investors on the cap table. Um, and it's it's a great example of how the ecosystem is moving in the right direction towards inclusivity and recognizing the value that diversity brings to the table. Um, but these things are, are slow to adopt. And so, um, you know, even though there's good progress being made, we've still certainly got a ways to go. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that sounds like a great resource. And to your point, I think, um, you know, I had been working on this story just a couple weeks ago about the the struggle that LGBTQ founders have um, navigating the VC market and fundraising, whether they're out or not. And, you know, the founders that I've spoken to, they've made it clear that their greatest support has come from VCs that have shared lived experience, maybe their allies. But more than that, if they understand at a fundamental level what this founder is going through or struggling with, um, it not only makes trust easier to be established, but it also helps these founders feel comfortable enough to make the right business decisions and to stay true to their missions. But on the flip side, you know, it's something that you have spoken about to me is that it's not always, as a founder, you don't always have the luxury of um, saying no to an investor that may not be explicitly an ally or or that you haven't had that open conversation with. Maybe you don't even have the luxury of being out because you know you need the funding to keep your business alive. Do you think that I mean, do you ever advise founders not to take an investment if they are like very clearly not an ally? Like do you think that's detrimental somehow to the company long term? How how do you like how do you think founders draw that line? I will say I have a, a lot of sympathy for founders who are put in positions like that. At the end of the day, um, these entrepreneurs, these CEOs, these company leaders have devoted time, energy, blood, sweat, and tears um, to this company. They are responsible for its success. They are responsible for their employees. Um, and at the end of the day, uh, there are moments where they have to make certain decisions um, in terms of, of taking on capital or or other decisions, right? Other other kind of decisions that place them personally in a moral dilemma. Um, and I, I don't envy that position. Um, and it is incredibly challenging. And it's one of the things that Gangels uh, really works to do is to build an inclusive venture ecosystem where, um, you know, diversity is celebrated and diversity is, um, is, is valued because it brings something extra to the table as opposed mm-hmm. to something being, you know, to be feared. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I do want to mention in addition to the LGBTQ community, other marginalized or underserved groups, for example, being a woman or a person of color leading a company. It's also very difficult 
In 2022, women-led startups raised barely 2% of startup funding, and venture capital for Black entrepreneurs dropped in 2022 um, more than the drop in VC funding overall. And I'm wondering, like, when we're thinking about all these different diverse founders and the need to shift um, and redistribute funding more equitably, what do you think will help? I mean, what is the future of equitable fundraising and the future of VC from your point of view? I think it's about building inclusive networks. Um, I think a big part of this is is creating um, a community and an ecosystem where diverse folks feel like they are welcomed in the startup community. And over time, um, their inclusion in these companies will lead to them founding companies. And it's certainly not going to be a, a fix that happens overnight, um, and it's going to take time. But I do think that that's, uh, you know, a, a piece of of how we make progress. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, that's great. And I wanted to ask also, if you can speak to this, um, when you or your, you know, your organization, Gangels, when you're considering an investment. Do you look for diverse representation in places beyond leadership, like the board, um, the employees, maybe even the population that the company is is serving? Can you talk about the importance of that? We generally take the position that we are looking to help all companies, regardless of the diversity that exists, improve upon their DEI strategy, including recruitment, including um, diverse representation. Uh, So I would say it's part of our mission is to make DEI easier. Mm, I see. So it's not even so much about, you know, having DEI 100% down and being the most diverse company ever. It's about having the space and the willingness to get there and to do that work and to for Gangels to to see it's possible to empower our company to do that. Absolutely. I, I think having the room for improvement and the willingness and eagerness to improve is really important. Um, and to do it at a stage where we can help these companies build culture, build inclusive culture, so that by the time they are this massive corporation, it's built into their scaffolding. It's built into the infrastructure already, as opposed to having to, um, you know, come in at a later stage and try to shift the culture. Mm-hmm. Which a lot of companies are doing right now. Absolutely. <laughs> are struggling. Great. Well, thank you so much. Those are all the questions I have. Thanks for having me. Really appreciate it. Thank you for listening to Podnosis. I'm Teresa Carey. You can find out more about these topics in our show notes at FierceHealthcare.com. Look for podcasts. And don't forget to tune in every Wednesday morning to Podnosis, where healthcare is our beat.